And welcome to March of History. I am your co-host, Trevor Furness. I'm here with my other co-host, Brandon. Want to say hi, Brandon? Hey, this is Brandon Furness. I'll be co-hosting with Trevor. Perfect. And for the first episode of March of History, we decided to talk about uh, the one and only Julius Caesar. He's actually probably my all-time favorite historical figure for a variety of reasons, one of which I think he's kind of unique in the fact that he's the only historical figure I've ever read about, at least, that seems to have been good at every single thing he put his hand to. He was considered to be one of the top-tier writers of his day, one of the greatest Roman generals of all time, one of the greatest politicians of all time, one of the greatest public speakers of all time, a master horseman, somebody who was known to be extremely skilled with weapons, great at interpersonal skills, and had an enormous amount of charisma. So there seems to be nothing that this guy tried that he wasn't good at, which isn't to say that he didn't fail a lot, because he did, but... That's kind of the interesting part of his life is is this person with immense talent going against a, a lot of odds and, and most of the time succeeding, but not always. So I've, I've heard of Caesar the Conqueror, but what do you mean by Caesar the writer? I've heard anything. I've heard of Cicero, but I've never heard of Caesar being yeah. a great writer. Caesar was known to be one of the better writers in his time during the Roman Republic. And, and that's something to keep in mind, too, is... You know, we all know about the Caesars as as the emperors of, of Rome. This is before the emperors. This was he was lived during the uh, the time of the Republic. In fact, he was instrumental in, in transforming it from a republic to an empire. But he was known to be a fantastic writer in his day and age. He wrote while he was on a campaign in Gaul, which is modern day France, something called the Gallic Commentaries. And they were basically dispatches from himself in the front lines to the Senate and to the people of Rome, writing about the exploits of his army and the conquests that they made. And it's considered to be a masterpiece of Latin literature. And many Latin classes start out learning Caesar's Gallic commentaries simply because he used his very simple and direct language. It's not a lot of like flower, flowery wording. It's very direct, very simple and I know also while on campaign, he wrote a, a whole I guess, book or pamphlet on correct use of Latin grammar. I'm not exactly sure what it was about, but he was very into writing, very into into Latin and was considered to be extremely skilled at it, which is unusual, unusual when you're talking about conquering, uh, you know, war heroes. They're not usually writers. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But uh, we will cover all that as we go through his life. As I said in the intro, the way I, I foresee uh, March of History is going from beginning to end of really interesting historical figures' lives. So we're going to take Caesar from the beginning of his life all the way to the end. And once we're done with that, we'll find somebody new to talk about. But there's a lot that happened in Caesar's life. It's probably a more eventful life than most people ever live. So it'll be an interesting one for us. So to get started, I guess we'll just give you a, a feel for the world in which he was born into. I'm not going to bore everybody with, with a lot of dates, but I will say that he was born in roughly around the year 100 BC. And again, Rome was still a republic. It was having a lot of troubles at this time, the republic, but it was still a republic and nobody could conceive of it being anything other than a republic. And when he was born, there was a, a civil war between two men one named Marius, who was, or Gaius Marius, who was Caesar's uncle, 
and one named Lucius Cornelius Sola. Lucius Cornelius Sola. (laughs) And uh, these two guys were very similar and very opposite, very unique personalities, very strong personalities. I mean, obviously, they drug the entire republic into civil war because of their personal feud. So I'm going to give you a background on them and who they are because they have a big influence on Caesar in his early life. Marius was, he was kind of an outsider to Rome. He was born in a town outside the city called Arpinum. The Romans were extremely snobby about who was Roman, who wasn't Roman, and they did not like outsiders coming in and taking political positions because there was only a finite amount of these political positions, these elected offices, and every outsider that got one eliminated a what they considered a real Roman from getting one. So kind of much like the U.S. today, they were kind of a city of a, of a lot of different immigrants over the years. But many of those immigrants then turned around and felt like they weren't immigrants, they were Romans now, and they didn't want the new immigrants. <laughs> so yeah. it's a yeah, lot of parallels. One, yeah. yeah, one thing that I was wondering, because I've heard you say in the past that Marius is an outsider, a new man of Rome, and Caesar is from an old family of Rome. How are they related if uh, one's from an old family and the other is his uncle, but a new man of Rome? That's a good question. Yeah, so they they did call Marius uh, a new man, or uh, they called it, it was in, in Latin, Novus Homo, which meant that you had no illustrious ancestors to point to. You were an unknown family. And Marius, and this was actually quite common, so Marius was considered to be incredibly capable, an up-and-coming force of nature, a very strong personality, but he had no ancestors, but he had a ton of money from uh, the different wars that he had fought and the business ventures that he had done. Now, Julius Caesar's family had the lineage, had the – they were considered to be descended from actually the goddess Venus or uh, the equivalent of the Greek goddess Aphrodite. And uh, she was supposed to have had a kid with one of the princes of Troy, and that kid was – I believe his name was Aeneas – and then when the Greeks sacked Troy, Aeneas, who was a prince of Troy and descendant of this goddess Venus, fled and then went and eventually settled in Rome. And so that was his ancestry. So it goes way back to, to goddesses. So they would combine this person of Marius, who had a lot of talent, a lot of money, a lot of uh, sway in the government, with this illustrious name of the Caesars, and they would combine to form kind of a a united entity to achieve both their political aims. The Caesars needed somebody with talent, somebody with money, and he needed somebody with a legitimate name that people would recognize, so they combined that way. So he actually married Caesar's Aunt Julia, who was his father's sister. Okay, so he's not a blood-related uncle. Not uh, blood-related, no. Okay. I mean by marriage, yeah. But I mean, I think most people would call it that's true. Yeah. Still refer to that as their uncle or aunt. But yeah, and, and Marius, he would go on to become one of the greatest military leaders in Roman history. He completely reformed the Roman military army. He allowed the urban poor to serve in the military. Prior to that, you had to be a land-holding Roman citizen with X amount of wealth, and you had to provide your own armor, and you had to provide uh, your own horse maybe or, or whatever it is you brought to war you to bring yourself and it was comprised of aristocrats and citizens alike and everybody fought in the front lines including the politicians which is a wild thought for today you can imagine how wars might be different if politicians had to fight in the front lines 
though it didn't stop the Romans from fighting. You know, they still started a lot of wars. But after you've probably heard of Hannibal, the guy who crossed the Alps, one of Rome's greatest foes. This was a, a generation or two before a lot of the Roman aristocracy and citizens all died. And so they didn't really have enough people to to have these armies anymore. And in the old days, it used to be, like I said, citizen soldiers. So they would work their farms part of the year, go on campaign for part of the year, and return and work their farms. And that was fine when they fought in Italy, when they fought other tribes and other peoples in Italy. But once they started going further and further afield, and they're fighting in Africa, and they're fighting in the Middle East, and they're fighting in Spain— it's just not possible to go back and forth and, and farm your farms during one part of the year and fight during the other. So Marius created more of a professional army. He said the state will pay for the urban poor's equipment. He will train them. He will take personal responsibility for them. And it's one of those interesting things that to me always seems like a, like a very good thing. Like you have these you know, urban poor that don't have jobs, that are unemployed, that are, you know, probably causing issues in Rome, you know, via riots and giving them a chance to, to be productive. And he's giving them a chance. He's giving them a chance to, to rise in society and to make something of themselves. And it's hard to see why that would be bad. And it, it seems like the people that didn't want this at the time are, are merely, you know, being snobs. But fast forward and you'll see that since it was no longer these troops' jobs to bring their own stuff, they relied on the general. And the general to feed them, the general to clothe them, the general to give them armor, the general to keep them alive. And when they retired, they didn't have a farm to go back to. So it was the general's job to give them land. And so they became more soldiers of their individual general than soldiers of the republic. And this is what led to these kind of civil wars between Marius and Sola. Because now that it wasn't soldiers of Rome, it was soldiers of Marius, soldiers of Sola. And they loved their soldiers and they would follow them rather than Rome because... What did the government of Rome ever give these people? Nothing. So not only did the Marius uh, inscript uh, peasant soldiers, but so it also followed suit. Yeah, it's funny because I've heard that it had started to become somewhat common before Marius did it out of necessity, but he actually formalized it and made it part of the military's doctrine. And he okay. did a lot of things with that. So he didn't know that wasn't the only change that he made. He also changed the fighting formations that they used. He had it so that they wouldn't have a baggage train. They would carry all their stuffs on their backs. So the, the troops started calling themselves Marius's mules because he didn't he didn't need horses and mules for his army. He had his soldiers who would carry everything on their backs. So he put a lot of reforms with the army, but they say that they weren't all just brand new out of nowhere. Some of them were kind of maybe done in some armies, not in others. And he you know, took the best of all the different ideas and, and made them actual part of the military doc, doctrine of the Romans versus things that were you know, maybe done, maybe not done. And Got yes, it. Sola would have followed suit as well after he passed a law that allowed him to recruit those kind of troops legally. So Marius and Sola actually started out very different because as I said, Marius was a new man, but he was very rich. But he, came, he became very rich because he made his name in the army. He was known to be a, a soldier soldier. He was extremely tough, extremely in shape. He, he fought hard with his soldiers. He, he was fearless. And so he rose via his own virtue to become this great man. Now, Sola was born a patrician. And a patrician is like the Roman aristocrat. Julius Caesar was a patrician as well. 
going back to the beginning of the Roman Republic, there were the patricians who were the aristocracy and the plebeians who were the common people. Over time, the plebeians got more power and different plebeian families that gained money would be, you know, consul, which is their version of president over and over and over again and would gain a lot of power. But this whole designation of patrician still existed. But just because you were a patrician didn't mean your money had or your family had money. And Sola was dirt poor. You know, maybe at one time they had been rich, but his father didn't really leave him with much. He grew up in a very poor sections of the city. He was friends with actors and prostitutes and comedians, which the Romans considered all to be in the same category. <laughs> they thought very little of actors. So he was really friends with the slums of society. He was hard drinking. He was he didn't have enough money to enter the Senate despite his distinguished family background. But he had some fortuitous events happen to him right around the time he was 30. His stepmother, so his father died when he was younger, but his stepmother then died and bequeathed all of her money to him. And then there was a courtesan of Rome who was obsessed with Sola. I think they had an affair going, and she loved him so much that she wrote him into her will, and then shortly later died. And I don't know exactly when she died, but she put him in her will, and she died. And then Sola got her money as well, so then suddenly he, he had enough wealth and qualified to go into the Senate. And he was known to be a, a very insidious character. His, people said he just had this aura of fear and, and terror that surrounded him. They said he looked like the god Apollo. He had kind of reddish gold hair. He had pale white skin. And when he became extremely angry, which he could often do out of nowhere, his face would turn blotchy purple and, and, and look, uh, people said, quite terrifying to them. So he, he got a kind of a late start in life compared to Marius, compared to m many Roman noblemen who, who's, you know, normally their fathers would have been introducing to people from the time they were young kids and putting them in good schools. And, you know, Sola had none of that. He just kind of came into this money and entered the Senate and figured, you know, let's, let's see what happens. And so there, there are rumors, right, that maybe he came into some of that money not in a scrupulous way? Yeah, yeah. It's funny. The Romans looked equally as down upon somebody that was born with a lot of money that came from their parents and, and lost it. They looked down on that kind of person just as much as they looked down on somebody that was born with nothing and suddenly came into a bunch of money. They felt that both things were immoral for some reason. And one senator even remarked to Sola one time that no person born with so little that acquired so much could have done so in a moral way. Essentially, you know, thinking that maybe he killed off some of these women that, that got, and, and ended up with all their money. You know, they don't say exactly but these rumors seem to be quite persistent about Sola, that he was a, a shady character. And yeah, people seem to think that he didn't come into his money entirely in an ethical fashion. But he did enter into the military, and he ended up serving under Marius in this war in North Africa against this King Jugurtha. And he had this, this big kind of, I don't know what you call it, a ploy. So he met somehow the cousin of King Jugurtha, and the cousin wasn't too happy with the king. And Sola reached out to his commanding officer, Marius, who was commanding the entire theater at the time, and said to Marius, 
And this is this is kind of before Marius is that famous. He he's getting there. He's getting to be known as a great military mind, but he's not the Marius he would later become. And he says, "Hey, this cousin of this king has agreed to set up the king so that we can kidnap him and end this war in one stroke." And so Solus, you know, volunteered for the mission. Said, "I'd like to go." And it was pretty obvious that this could be a trap for Sola too. You know, <laughs> you rely on this guy to betray his blood relative to you. He could just as easily decide last minute he'd rather betray you to his blood relative, who's the king, right. and, and look good, you know? So Marius said yes to this. Solo went and rode out like into the desert, I believe. I don't know if I'm remembering this exactly right. The podcast is not on Solo, so forgive me if some of the details are a little bit wrong. But they rode out to this like desert meeting place. He met with the king's cousin there and then had to wait for the king to arrive, not knowing if he was going to be turned over by this cousin or if the king was going to be turned over to him and then eventually the cousin did decide and turned over the king to Sola and Sola spirited him away brought him to the Roman camp and, and the Romans seized him and were able to end the war early. Marius you know as commanding officer as was custom in Rome would receive all credit for this because he receives all credit or all blame regardless you know anybody that does things under him it was at his orders therefore he receives all the credit but when they got back to Rome, Marius felt that Sola was bragging and, and taking all the credit for this mission, saying that he was the one that captured Jugurtha and he was the one that ended the war. And this, it kind of started some bad blood between them. And so what do you say? This this is the start of the, uh, the rivalry between yeah, Sola exactly. and this is, this Marius is where... at the uh, start of it all? Yeah, yeah. They had no issue with each other before this, as far as I know. But after this, they began to become rivals. Marius becomes consul for the first time after this war because he becomes a, a big-time war hero. Consul is like the Roman equivalent of a president, except they had two of them because they never had one, they never wanted one person to have so much power. They wanted, the, wanted them to be bounced out by a second person. So Marius becomes consul, and then around this time, a massive army of Germans and Germanic peoples comes invading down from from Germany and 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 France and uh, sweeps down into like, the Swiss area and, and maybe northern Italy, and this is a this is I guess after Marius has left as consul and, and Rome sends up a number of armies to defeat these peoples. It's it's not just an army of Germans. It, it's it's their it's men, women, and children as well. And there's three tribes, and I think there's like three hundred and fifty thousand of them total which is a massive number in the ancient world. Now, that's not all fighting people. That's, you know, women, children included, but they still had massive armies. And the Germans really intimidated the Romans because the Romans were of short stature, and the Germans were known to be huge, over six feet tall and big and muscular and strong and absolutely fierce and fought in a frenzy. And the Romans sent up multiple armies to fight these guys, but they were all commanded by these inept aristocrats that you know were too busy worrying about their own prestige and their own honor rather than defeating the enemy. So they would they would bicker with each other, they would fight, they wouldn't help each other. And so multiple Roman armies got absolutely wiped off the face of the map. Some of the worst disasters in Roman history, like eighty thousand troops dead. I mean and, and the city of Rome was terrified because now these Germans can just sweep down and sack the city of Rome. There's nothing standing between them. And I guess at this point, finally, after multiple of these defeats, they decide 
maybe we won't give the next command to a aristocrat. We'll give it to somebody that actually knows what they're doing when it comes to the military. And they elect Marius as consul again. This is pretty unusual. Typically, you'd serve as consul once in your lifetime. I think there was a rule in the books that said you could do it twice, but only like, with a 10-year gap. Marius hadn't waited 10 years, and he got elected consul again. and was given command of the armies. And I think at this point, he wouldn't even let Sola serve under him, and so tried to deny Sola any glory, <laughs> which pissed Sola off. So he, he kind of is a bit of an instigator, Marius. Yeah, in some ways. I mean, it... Like any story, you know, there's two sides. So he would say that Sola was, you know, trying to take his glory to begin with, and that he probably has no obligation to take Sola on campaign with him. It's it's his army, you know. Not everybody gets invited on campaign, <laughs> but he definitely didn't like Sola at that point, and Sola didn't like him. So he tried to basically sideline Sola in his career. And Marius takes his troops up, and and he's elected consul again and again, six times in total. This is unheard of in Roman history. It, it's a special thing to be elected consul twice. He, he's elected consul six times, not all in a row. So he's the first time, then a gap, and then maybe four or five times in a row after that. But a total of six times at this point. And he kind of trails these Germans, and he wants his troops to become familiar with the Germans. So he puts his camp right next to the Germans, and he wants his troops to look at them so that they become accustomed to them and they're not so afraid of them. And his troops begin to complain at one point that they have no water and that they're thirsty. And Marius points to a river over by the Germans and he says, you want water? Take it from the enemy. And so he, he forces his troops to go fight for their water and fight the Germans. And they actually end up chasing the Germans off. And eventually he's doing all these things that build their confidence and make them think that they can win again because they're really down and out after all those losses. Eventually, through some brilliant military victories, he absolutely destroys at least one of the tribes, or maybe two of them. And then the third tribe comes to him, and you know, because they're all they're all wandering. Some of them wander down into Spain, and then they come back up to northern Italy, or they, they wander through France because there was that kind of a trend at the time that people would pick up and, and burn all their homes for some reason and go travel in mass to a new area that thought could be better for their people. And so they were all looking for a new home, but you know they're happy to raid along the way, and they're, they were very warlike people. And so this, this new tribe comes, and they demand to speak with, I guess, the other tribes. They demand to know where they are, and they meet with Marius. And Marius says something along the lines, and I'm probably getting this ex- not exactly correct, but he says to them, oh, and they demand land of Marius too. They want the Romans to give them land. And Marius says, your friends are around here, and don't worry, you'll have the same land I gave to them. Meaning that he had killed all these other tribes and, and put them all on the ground, and saying that the land that you'll get is, is a grave just like them. I probably butchered that one. It's not exactly right, but Marius is basically kind of the ultimate tough guy and was not afraid of these guys. And eventually he defeats all these tribes, and he comes back to Rome, conquering hero. They name him as the third founder of Rome. Yeah, there's a second founder outside of Romulus, but we won't go into him. They call him the third founder, and he's a huge celebrity. And he becomes like a larger-than-life force in Rome. Any questions on that, Brennan? Yeah, I guess I was wondering uh, before when you said that the, these tribes wandered down into the peninsula, how much intention did they have of even attacking Rome, or, uh, or how much awareness did they have that, that Rome existed? I, I guess they knew that it existed, but 
did they really have any sense of were they purely wandering or did they have some intent showing down to the peninsula they were wandering but they they certainly liked to raid and, and sack villages and, and cities when they found them and the romans they were all obsessed with kind of controlling everything and they felt that these wandering peoples couldn't possibly be good and they're just going to cause instability in the region and so they wanted to put a stop to it and the romans also had this deep-seated i mean deep-seated psychological fear of the northern barbarians and it goes back to when the republic was early on some gauls came down from the north actually the story really goes that and, and the gauls were from like modern day france but they were also considered by the romans to be barbarians from the north i guess some sicilian king had hired them for some kind of mercenary army and on their way back from that war back up to modern day france they see rome sitting there and they're like oh why don't we sack this village or the, i mean not village but this city and so they go and they fight the Roman army and the Roman army becomes terrorized by how aggressive and out of control these Gauls are. And the Roman army takes off in flight and gets it put to flight. And the Gauls come up to the city and, and the, the Romans left in such a panic. The, the gate is still open. It's this bizarre scene. So they walk right into the city and they're thinking that this could be some kind of trap. They're very nervous. And, and the king of the Gauls tells them not to go to you know, wander too much. And eventually they end up in the maybe richer area of the city. And the older, like elder statesmen of Rome had refused to leave their homes. And they had sat, they had put on all their regalia of office, you know, their special togas and special rings and everything that made them look like Roman senators. And they sat, they sat in their homes like statues upon their special consular chairs and they just sat there like that, and and the Gauls started opening these these mansions and going into these these big Roman homes. And they would see these guys sitting there, and they were very confused by it. They didn't know like why were these guys just sitting there? They weren't responding. They weren't fighting, and they were just sitting there looking like regal statues. Until so one of the Gauls comes up and, and pokes one of these elder statesmen, and the guy takes I guess a rod he had his in, on, in his hand and smacks the Gaul. And the Gauls just lose their mind and start butchering the guy. And they start butchering all these elder statesmen. It, it, it's just a bizarre story. And eventually the Romans sue for peace and, and offer them a bunch of gold and say, hey, you know, if, you, if we give you this gold, will you leave us alone? The Gauls, who aren't interested in taking their territory, they just want money, said, yeah, sure, why not? And they're weighing out the scales. And they're saying, hey, you need to give us X amount of gold. And the Romans begin to complain that the scales are weighted in the Gauls' favor. It's not a fair scale. It's a, it's a cheater scale. And so the, the Gallic king walks up to the scale, looks at the Romans, tosses his sword on his side of the scale, too, to add to the unfairness, and says, Woe to the vanquished. Woe to the vanquished. Meaning, the vanquished have no rights. You have lost. You have no rights. Therefore, we can do what we want to you. You know, there is no such thing as fairness for you. And the Romans never forgot this lesson. This would drive them for the rest of the, I don't know, 800,000. It all depends on how where you cut, cut off. But the rest of their existence, they would be driven by this psychological lesson they received when they were kind of in their child status of, of, of being a, a city-state. 
and they would never forget that. So they had this this deep seated fear of barbarian invasions from the north that could sweep down and just sack their city, and they never wanted to to go through that kind of pain and embarrassment again. So when they saw these big Germanic tribes wandering up north, they're like we got to put an end to this, and and they felt that nobody should wander without their permission. And that sooner or later, if they weren't asking for Roman land now, they would be later, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. So I never knew that it started off with the, the Gauls just walking into Rome like that. I probably assumed that the first time that they had actually entered Rome was uh, later on in the in the Empire. But, yeah, it's interesting that that's the background to their, their, their hate for the Gauls. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting because they were sacked early on in that instance in their history, and they wouldn't be sacked again for some 800-some years till it was a Gothic king, Alaric, sacked the city 800 years later. Now, when was this initial uh, sacking in relation to Marius and Sola at their time? That's a good question. I don't know the exact year. I know it was hundreds of years before their time, though. Um, okay. Or at least 150, 200 years, maybe more. Probably more. And But the Romans, it affected them to the point where they, they always kept an emergency fund of gold called like the, I don't know, like the Gallic Fund or something like that. I don't know, maybe that's not the exact name, but that's what it would be used for. It was a fund of a stash of money that in case Gauls ever invaded again, barbarians from the north, they would have this this fund to pay for weapons and to fight a war against them. It was an emergency fund, just like today we keep emergency funds for natural disasters. They had one for Gauls that they kept at all times. It was supposed to be untouchable, and nobody would use it because it was reserved in case this ever happened again. But Marius comes back. He, he was very good militarily, but he seems to have been kind of, I don't know, shifty politically. And he would ally himself with a lot of seedy characters and would like encourage maybe... I've heard he encouraged like assassinations of different people. <laughs> this is not the way Rome did things. They were very much like a republic or democracy by today's standards. I mean, eh, probably m- much more violent than today's standards, but violence was not supposed to be the way that political disputes were settled in Rome. And so Marius soon kind of gets sidelined and loses favor. So he served his six consulships and he kind of just goes away for a while. And there's some people say that he had health problems during that time but the romans were funny in that they would make fun of you if you got soft later in life as a public figure you'd be an object of ridicule but if you held on to the reins too long they'd make fun of you and say you're trying to hold on too long so there was, there was a lose-lose situation so marius they started joking that he was fat that he was overweight that he was a, a nobody now this guy that had done so much to save the city you, you can imagine how that felt to him but new generation comes on the scene. Sola begins to rise up the ranks. Sola becomes consul. Again, that's the Roman version of president. And at the same time, this king in the east from a, a, a kingdom called Pontus, which is like northern Turkey. In, his name is Mithridates. And he invades the eastern Roman Empire. So he invades Greece. He invades some of the areas of Turkey that Greece rules, and he just slaughters every single Roman citizen he can find in all these provinces. And he tells all the all the people who are ruled by the Romans, the Greeks, to rise up and kill the Roman citizens too, and they do. And they, they butcher thousands, I mean, maybe hundreds of thousands, I don't know how many exactly. So now Rome says, we can't stand for this, 
and they will need to create an, a commission to the east, like an eastern command, a commander to take an army out to the east to fight Mithridates and, and put him back in his place and restore order to the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Sola is the man they select. He's known to be a brave leader who, who fights with his troops. In the meantime, I guess going back a little bit, because Sola did, one of the ways that he began to gain this reputation outside of what he did in Africa was there was a thing called the Social War in between the Germans and, and this Eastern War where the Italians rose up and, and rebelled against the Romans. And some Roman, some Italians were on the Roman side, some weren't, but it was basically a civil war within Italy. And Sola received... Um, I just a quick question. So yeah. when you say Italian, are we talking about tribes here? Are these civilized people or... How do they compare to the Romans and the Gauls? No, that's a great question. So early on in, in the Roman city-state life, they had mostly fought against these rival Italian tribes or city-states, the Sabines, the Marci, is some of the names of these people are called. And Rome had defeated them one by one and kind of brought them into the fold. And they didn't have the same rights as Romans did, but they had much more rights than the rest of the empire did. They'd be given an Italian status, or uh, some of the tribes real close to Rome would be given uh, Latin rights, which was pretty close to having Roman citizenship. And the whole war was fought over the fact that these Italian communities, who provided the bulk of the Roman armies nowadays, didn't have citizenship and didn't get to vote on who was consul and didn't get to vote on any of this stuff. And what's ironic is, even when they rose up against Rome, they didn't want to destroy Rome, they wanted to be Rome. So they created uh, like a, a government that was exactly like Rome's of their own. They created coins that were very similar to Roman coins. They had legions that fought like Roman legions. So it was a war of, of Rome against her own Italian allies. And does that answer the question? I mean, they were yeah, definitely yeah, they were definitely. civilized. Maybe they weren't quite as advanced as the Romans or. Even maybe the Romans were were the same level of advancement, but the Romans were just known to be almost like pig-headedly stubborn when it came to war. They would rather be wiped off the face of the map than surrender. And most city-states and tribes did not operate this way in ancient times. And most people don't operate that way nowadays. But the Romans would really rather be wiped off the face of the earth than ever surrender. So they were a very tough foe to beat because they would they would never stop. And uh, they might lose again and again and again like they did against the Germans, but they would just keep on raising new armies, and w it was just unthinkable for them to surrender. So the Romans end up winning this, this social war, and then they go ahead and, and grant a lot of these Italian allies citizenship anyway because they realize that this had to happen. <laughs> and But in that war, Sola won what's called uh, the Grass Crown, it's uh, kind of like a, like a Medal of Honor today. The Romans had a bunch of different honors you could win. One of the cooler ones, I don't even know what it's called, but it's it's an award that you would get if you killed a barbarian king in single combat. <laughs> and I think only a few soldiers won it in, in all the Roman history, but it's a pretty badass honor to win a, an award for killing a barbarian king in single, single combat. But anyway, Solo wins what's called the grass crown which is one of the rarest distinctions given to any soldier it's when one individual saves an entire legion 
And a legion is kind of the, the Roman unit the, the armies are divided up, up into. So it would be like the 1st Legion, 2nd Legion, 3rd Legion, and each legion was maybe like 3,500 men or so, depending on if they were at full strength. And so he saves an entire legion during this social war and wins the grass crown, becomes a military hero. Hardly anyone gets this kind of award because it's just, I mean, how many people find themselves in the opportunity to save a legion, never mind actually do it. And he becomes consul based on this new fame that he's got, and he wins this command against Mithridates in the east. And at this point, he's still as consul commanding armies in the south of Italy or you know, further south than Rome, destroying the last of the holdouts of these Italian uh, rebels. And Marius decides that he had always wanted a, uh, an eastern command himself. And how dare Sola take it for himself? And at this point, Marius is old. He's not young. He's got to be in his late 60s maybe, which in ancient Rome, I mean, that's very old. You know, People usually don't even live that long. Why is it? Why is the uh, Eastern Command so important? Why? Why is that more valued by Marius than any other command? That's a that's a great point. I, I should have mentioned that in in Rome, Eastern commands were known to be extremely rich, and extremely, or held held the opportunity for a lot of glory. So the the Eastern half of the empire, throughout the entire empire, was always the richer half. It was much more developed, a lot more people, a lot more gold. So a lot more chances for riches for the general and a lot more chances for glory. And the Romans all had this kind of obsession with Alexander the Great, too. And, and going and taking your armies east always felt like they were playing at being Alexander, you know? Conquering the same areas that he conquered, fighting the same kind of enemies that he fought. And it was just paid attention by the Roman people much more, since, I guess, a, a lot of that area was civilized. They would write. It, you weren't fighting barbarians. You were fighting civilized people. At the same time, and kind of contradictory, the Romans saw Eastern peoples as being weak and effeminate. So it was felt that they were easier to beat, too. So it doesn't really make sense. There's a big contradiction there. You would win more glory, but they were easier to beat, and they had more money. But I don't know. That's just the way it was. So everybody wanted an Eastern command, and Marius had one-on-one won his entire life and had just never had the opportunity. And now this guy, Mithridates, comes in and I mean, he really like rocked Rome right in the nose by killing all those civilians. So this is not like your ordinary Eastern command. This is a this is going to be a massive battle. And so when we say East, what area do we mean in modern day uh, in terms of modern day countries? Is this like Greece or this further east, uh, Turkey or the Middle East? Yeah. So he was uh, Pontus, which was where Mithridates was from, was northern Turkey. He conquered much of Turkey, going west from there towards the mediterranean he conquered through where say istanbul is now into greece a lot of the islands like say crete in that kind of area it's really greece and turkey and some of the areas in between and that's it's it's funny the romans would call that asia the middle east to them was asia but marius anyway he decides that he wants this command for himself He's still glory hungry, even though he's this old. And actually, let me just go back a little bit. I had said that he was out from public life and nobody had seen him in a while. And they were joking that he was fat and out of shape and this and that. Well, he had decided that he was going to get started a very, what they call it, like a public workout, almost like a Rocky montage. So he, he just started showing up in the public workout forums that the Romans had. And he starts swimming, and, and he's exercising, and he's running, and, he, and he's fighting with weapons. 
And this is all as an old man. And he's getting in shape, and the people are loving it, and they're cheering him on. And it becomes like it becomes kind of a sensation again, and, and puts his name back on the map. And and he's not out of shape. He's not out of politics. He's back in things. He, he and he wants. He's ambitious again. And so then he decides that he wants this Eastern Command. So while Sola's fighting the last of these rebels, he holds a meeting of the Senate, Marius, and he got he gets some bully boys with him. You know, some some thugs. And they just start throwing Roman senators out of the Senate meeting, I believe, till they get the vote right to strip Sola of his command and give it to Marius. So now this, this sounds it sounds very uncivilized and like uh, <laughs> a very non-traditional way to do things. Is this typical for Rome, or how, how does this, as it's, a republic, is this in in what position does uh, Marius even hold at this point to uh, to carry these these things out? He doesn't hold any really. He he's maybe he might call him the first man in Rome. Everybody in Rome was always trying to become the first man in Rome, which meant you were kind of like the preeminent citizen. But you didn't. It wasn't an official position, and not even not every generation even had a first man in Rome. You had to be above and beyond your peers, which also meant that everybody hated you as soon as you became the first man in Rome, because they all resented anybody being above them. They're all about everybody should be equal, and so they try and tear down anybody who got above them. But this kind of physical, aggressive bullying tactics wasn't unheard of in Rome. It had happened. It was happening more recently in recent generations. But it was still unusual and still appalling to many of the citizens that he had done this. But again, it wasn't like things like this hadn't been done before. But what happened next had never been done before. Sola's reaction was beyond the pale. If what Marius did was a strong area of gray that might border on wrong, what Sola did was, without a doubt, no Roman could condone what he did. So there was a rule in Rome that no Roman army could enter within this line around the city called the Pomerian. No Roman citizen could enter under arms. Uh, all the soldiers, you know, they would ha- the, even a, a general couldn't enter the city as a general, he had to relinquish command and become a citizen again before he could enter the city. And that had been that way since the founding of Rome for hundreds of years. In all these hundreds of years, nobody had broken that rule. Maybe close to 400 years, nobody had broken that rule. And Sola sits down there and he hears and he, he gets this news. That a messenger shows up and says that Sola is to stand down, re- relinquish command immediately and give up his army to Marius. But remember, I said that these soldiers are now less soldiers of Rome and more soldiers of their individual general, right? So maybe in the past this would have worked, but the troops get very angry at this. And they grab this messenger and and they kill him on the spot. And they tell Sola that they, they don't want another commander, they want him. And Sola says, you know what? Marius says I have to relinquish command of my army. The Senate's voted on it. But I have this army here. And they're willing to follow me. So I don't really have to give up this army. And so he takes his army and starts marching on Rome. Unheard of. There was, it was like, like nobody had even considered doing it before. Even Marius was shocked at this. It would be, so it, it, it seems almost stupid that they wouldn't think that this could happen. But think about it today. If, I mean, from the U.S. point of view, since, you know, you and I are, are from the U.S., if Washington or the president said to uh, relinquish your command and put somebody else in charge, 
nobody would expect that general to, to take his troops and march on Washington, D.C. and overthrow the government. You know, it just doesn't happen. It's just, it, it would be unheard of, even if it is possible. So Sulla takes his army and he marched up to Rome, and the Senate sending him messengers saying, Hey, stop this. You're, you're going a little too far. What are you doing? And Sulla refuses to stop until as Marius raises it kind of a, a ragtag rabble of forces to try and resist Sulla. Some gladiators, maybe some slaves, some veterans. Sulla comes in with a, a trained veteran army and, and just eviscerates him. And Marius is barely able to escape from the city and has this kind of harrowing journey out of Italy and eventually escapes Sola's death squads and, and escapes to Africa where he has many veterans settled there. And so now Sola has marched on Rome with an army for the first time ever. This is unheard of. And Yeah, it's a, a question. How did Marius even raise his army? I mean, I can't imagine. Uh, so he has no position of power. He's the first man of Rome, though. It still seems tough that to just go through the countryside and, and raise an army from uh, villagers and slaves or uh, gladiators. Oh, he wasn't even in the countryside. He just grabbed a bunch of like urban poor and, and just like bully boys. And I don't even know why he would even do this because he had to know that he, they had no shot. But I guess he, fig- he figured that if Silva comes in, he, it, this might get taken out on his supporters. So he has to at least try and defend his supporters. Now, before this, before Sulla was in the south of Italy, there were tensions between him and Marius even before then. And a bunch of Marian supporters went crazy one day and started beating on Sulla's supporters. And Sulla was in fear of his life and had to run from them and actually had to hide in Marius's house uh, in order to get away from them, which was like a hu- huge embarrassment while he was consul. So that had added to the bad blood between them too. And yeah, I don't know exactly who these guys Marius Reyes were. Like some were gladiators that he hired. He still had an enormous amount of wealth. He was also like the people's hero. Is the other thing I forgot to mention about him. He was considered to have come from you know relatively low stock and low birth. He had worked his way through his own merit through the military, and the common people of Rome loved him, worshipped him. He was one of theirs. So I'm sure there were a lot of people willing to fight for him. And a lot of these, you got to also think that a lot of these people, the urban poor, they had had relatives or they themselves had served in his armies and he had elevated them and he had given them land and they owed a lot to him. And he was still had an immense amount of prestige, what the Romans called dignitas or gravitas. So he could still get things done. And he, he had allies who, who did have legitimate commands within the government at this time, you know, a tribune of the plebs that was on his side and other allies. But... It's obviously it's not going to be much against Sola and his actual troops, but maybe they thought that Sola would was bluffing that he would stop right at the Pomerium, the line around Rome, and wouldn't cross it. But Sola walked right across it. And this uh, Pomerium, that's how do they? Is this a, a geographical line, or is this like some kind of river or anything, or just no? A it's just certain it's, distance around Rome. It's certain distance around Rome. It got moved a few times early on during the city's life so that it could expand. But then eventually it kind of solidified at one location. And I think it was something to do with the fact that Jupiter, the kind of head god of, of their religion, so in Greek mythology, it's equivalent of Zeus. Jupiter blessed the area within the Pomerium and protected them from disaster 
and to bring weapons into Rome was to kind of incur his wrath. Now, it, it was a lot of religion and superstition, but it, it served the real purpose of preventing military takeovers. The Romans didn't even have a police force. There were no weapons allowed. I mean, did they have knives? Of course. You know, they had butchers and, and things like that. And in various times during public votings, there would be fights between, like, big gangs with clubs. People would sneak in swords sometimes. But the military never came into Rome. That was unheard of, at least during the time of the Republic. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea that they don't even have a police force shows that there it must have really been tradition for such a long time to not have any kind of uh, military or, or weapons in general in the in the town. Otherwise, it'd be it'd be tough to enforce. Yeah, it'd be tough to control the population if that wasn't the case uh, without any police force. Yeah, no, definitely. And that that's the way a lot of things in Rome were. A lot of their the the customs that they followed weren't actually laws. They were just unwritten customs that were unthinkable to break. Until somebody breaks them, suddenly, then suddenly people say, well, then I can do it too, you know? So they're extremely effective until suddenly they're not, these customs, these unspoken or, or unwritten laws. And, and this is a big one that Sola breaks. First person to ever do it. R- Romans worship people like there's the general Cincinnatus, who was way back in the beginning of Rome, he was a farmer that... I mean, they say he was a farmer, but I'm sure he was like a, like a farmer or he owned farms, but he was probably somebody in the government as well, somebody of high station. And they had some kind of war to fight against one of their neighbors, and they made him dictator of Rome, which was an actual position that they could create in times of emergency. They'd give you six months of complete power over life and death of everybody in Rome, and no repercussions could be pursued against you afterwards for what you did as dictator. And this guy, Cincinnatus, took on his position, fought the war. At the end of the six months or at the end of the, the time that he needed to defeat the enemy, he laid down his command peacefully and went back to his farm rather than seizing control of the city. And that's the kind of people that the Romans worshipped. You know, people that were selflessly serving the state and would not abuse these rules and, you know, would set these precedents. And that's actually where the, the American city Cincinnati comes from, from his name, Cincinnatus. Because Cincinnati, as I understand, has seven hills, and so does uh, the city of Rome. So that's where they got Cincinnati from, or Cincinnati. And then George Washington, founder or one of the founders of the U.S., actually modeled himself after Cincinnati. And that's why he wanted to defeat the British and then relinquish command willingly and become, a, uh, in his time, a modern-day Cincinnati. But those are the kind of unspoken customs that they worshipped and looked up to and, and everybody was expected to obey. At any point did they try to put these these unspoken laws into, or unspoken traditions into all? They did have some written laws. I'm not sure which ones were and which ones weren't. But many of them were just unspoken customs that and, – and, and they, they, were, they weren't just customs. They were intertwined with religion too. It was it, it was to see bringing an army to Rome wasn't just breaking the customs of your people. It was supposed to be incurring the wrath of the gods. And Sola knew that he could incur the wrath of Jupiter by doing this. But Sola felt that he had he had he had a goddess on his side that he felt that was even more powerful and would would protect him from this. I believe it was the the goddess Fortuna or, or goddess of fortune, and he believed that she was guiding him and setting his trajectory for his life. 
and Sola was definitely he was loved by his soldiers. They felt that he was a, a commander that would go out of his way to protect them and to do them a favor. But he was, he was an interesting personality too. I want to kind of flesh that out. He was known to be extremely charming, extremely genial, funny, fun guy to be around. And then suddenly, like that, he could just switch and be incredibly violent and angry and have people killed right in front of him. And he, he had an explosive temper and was a terrifying guy to people. A really fascinating personality. I would love to do a podcast on him, too. One of the more fascinating personalities I've ever, ever read about. But he takes his command, and because we won't get to Caesar eventually here, he takes his command, he goes to the east, he starts defeating Mithridates. In the meantime, while he's in the east, while he's in Greece, and he, he sacks Athens, and he, he cuts down the, I think, olive groves that Aristotle taught in just to give the finger to the Greeks. <laughs> and in the meantime, Marius comes back from Africa, raises a troop of, they said, like slaves and veterans alike, and marches on the city of Rome. So here, it hadn't happened once in like 400-some years. And now it's happened twice in the span of, I don't know, five years? Now Marius has marched on Rome. And he's brought his supporters, and they just start butchering people in the street. They're, they're, they're grabbing Sola supporters out of their homes. They're just butchering them. It's just a, it's a bloodbath in the city of Rome. This is horrible. You, you describe Sola as kind of a bit of a psychopath, someone who, who kills people in front of him, but it sounds like now Marius is the one who's going to Rome and not just for his army, but using it on uh, people and butchering them. So why is it that Sola gets described as someone who, who doesn't have a lot of empathy or, or can't control his anger and Marius does not? It's a good question. I think much of Marius's career, he was the people's hero. And it wasn't until later in life at this time, and he's maybe in like his late 70s at this point, and he's still leading armies and, and still wants to be in charge, which is, I, I find that crazy. He can't give it up. But I think for much of his life, he was the people's hero. He did things within the rules relatively. I mean, he had all those consulships, but the people were voting for him and everybody was okay with it because they figured it was better to you know, break the precedent and have... And then have him defeat the Germans, then keep sending you know inept aristocrats to to lose all their soldiers. But it wasn't until the very end that he kind of went crazy like this. It's, it's almost like a, a complete turnaround. And there's some that have theorized that maybe he had kind of early dementia at this point. And but whatever he if he had anything wrong with his mind, he certainly seems like he was very capable of organizing people and commanding armies still. And so they start butchering Sola's supporters, killing them left and right. He teams up with a guy named Cinna. And Cinna has command of uh, some Roman troops. I think he was maybe the consul at the time, too, Cinna. And eventually, Cinna, even though he's his ally, he lets, he lets this go on for a few days. He's kind of bloodletting. And eventually he says, enough's enough. And he has his troops put a stop and start fighting Marius's, you know, freedman, slave and gladiator and, and veteran army. These are all the people that Romans would look down upon, too, as people that didn't respect the Roman institutions and traditions. I mean, little wonder that they didn't consider the Romans enslaved them. <laughs> but this was, you know, when they, when they said that Marius had an army of slaves, it was, it was like an accusation. It was a blight on his character, they felt, that he was turning these foreign peoples that Rome had conquered and enslaved and 
unleashing them on Roman citizens. These are these are people. Some of these people from from other lands within within the peninsula or out of the uh, some other some other area. Yeah, we could do a whole episode on on, on Roman slavery. It's definitely different than the slavery in the southern U.S. I mean, there's definitely similarities too, but there's many differences. But many of these people. The way the Romans would get the slaves would, would be that they would defeat some foreign peoples in war and then enslave all their women and children and some of the men as well. And then they would grow up as slaves within Roman society. Some Sometimes people sold themselves into slavery to pay off debts. There's stories of learned men in Greece that knew philosophy and letters and numbers who would sell themselves into slavery because they knew that they could make far more money and live a better life teaching some rich Roman families kids than they ever could as a philosopher in Greece because the family, you know, if the kids grew up would still pay for that guy to you know, live a good life and, and have a nice house in Rome and he wouldn't be maltreated, be treated pretty well. So there's a variety of different types of slaves in Rome. Most of them weren't treated that well, but... So, uh, this brings up some, an interesting point that I'm thinking about is that so Marius, when he convinced these slaves, did he really convince them or did he convince their owners to uh, let them fight with them? I'm wondering if uh, it's a good since question. they weren't really they're more property than you know having their own, or if if he if he convinced them, not the owners, then he's he's also guilty of theft. Then <laughs> I, I the the reading I get is more that he was just raising rabbles. I don't think he's really getting anybody's permission. He's yeah. just saying, "Fight with me, and you'll have your freedom." Which it's funny because all the ancient sources portray this, at least in the way I've read them, as like this evil thing. But you think about it from a modern standard, he was taking people that were enslaved and he was raising them up and giving them their freedom and letting them have revenge on the people that had enslaved them. Maybe it doesn't sound so bad when you think about it, you know? <laughs> right, yeah. But eventually the, the guy Cinna, who's the consul at the time, and Marius' ally puts an end to it. He says, we're not, we're not killing any more Roman citizens. This is crazy. Marius who for years had said that he had seen a fortune teller one time who had told him that he would have seven consulships, constantly telling everybody this, and he had had six so far, has himself and, and Cinna elected as consuls. So now he's finally gained his seventh consulship. And then there's, there's stories in, in some sources, but not others, about Marius having these kind of night terrors at this point. He begins to kind of lose his mind and have tons of nightmares, and he's this is, the, this is the fearless guy that faced down the Germans with no fear that fought in many wars and fought in the front lines. And he once gave a speech in the Senate where he said, you know, I have no illustrious ancestors to point to. I have no great parentage to, to prove that I am you know, a, a, a good Roman. He goes, all I have are, are the scars of my body from fighting for Rome, all of them in front meaning that he had never been scarred in the back from running away. He'd always faced his enemies. So this was a fearless guy, and suddenly he's got night terrors, and, and he just, he's like a mess. And, and you can imagine how this affected his supporters. Their fearless leader is not looking so good. And then he dies, short, and not even, I mean, shortly into his consulship, into his seventh consulship. And again, people think it was maybe early onset dementia, and that's why he's behaving this way. So now all of his supporters are sitting there saying, oh, my God, we just butchered all of Sola, who is an excellent military commander's troops. And now we don't even have our military commander at our disposal anymore. We're in trouble. And 
Sola hears about this. He's not happy. He, he quickly patches up a peace treaty with Mithridates. That's the Pontus king that he had been defeating. He, he does a quick treaty with him, and he returns back to Rome. But Cinna has had a number, maybe like five years at this point, to prepare for Sola's returning, but doesn't seem to have done much. It's very odd. He doesn't really seem to have done much to prepare for this return that he knew must have been coming. And now Sola is returning with an army of veteran soldiers that are fanatically loyal to him. He, mar- he lands in southern Italy, coming back from Greece. And this is when young Pompey comes on the scene, who's a, a guy we'll talk about more in depth later. But he's a, he's a young, really, he's, he's an Italian. He's not even a Roman. And he raises his own personal army and joins Sola's army, as does another man named Marcus Crassus, who will also become a main character that we'll talk about. He raises a, a smaller army, but also joins Sola. And Sola marches on the city again. And Cinna, ra- or Cinna or his supporters had raised some Italian allies to help defend Rome from Sola. And, or at least had allied with them. And Sola ends up slaughtering them all right at the gate into the city of Rome and eventually gets into the city. And when he gets into the city, he starts giving a speech to the senators. And the senators become distracted from his speech because they're hearing these screams, like blood-curdling screams of pain. And they start whispering to each other, and they're not sure what's going on. And Sola gets angry at them. And he says, pay attention. He goes, some criminals are receiving their just due. Pay no mind to it. And in the meantime, his soldiers, all the prisoners that they had captured of these Italians, they had them in... I don't know the exact name for it. I, I got to look it up, but it, it's it's a one of the Roman government buildings that was used for voting and, and things of, of public nature, you know, prestigious building. And he, and he was using it as like a pen to corral these Italians and having his soldiers just butcher them with an earshot of the senators as he gives a speech. And these are the kind of stories I got tell, told about Solo that he's just a, a, an absolute psychopath, a scary guy. And so he comes in the city and, and his soldiers start killing people. He's got like secret police going out and just nabbing people and they d- disappear and never come back. And so even his supporters get nervous and they say, would you mind at least if you're not going to tell us or he goes, would you mind at least putting up a list of who will be killed and who won't be killed? And so the thinks so he goes, all right, I can do that. The next day they post up what they call prescription lists in the forum. And the forum was the main kind of square of Rome where public business was done and where, you know, government officials met. And the list has everybody's name on it and, or not everybody's name on it, but everybody that Solo once killed's names on it. And what it means is that anybody in Rome can then kill this person at will and bring their head to Sola and receive payment for it. This is, this is barbaric and terrifying to the Romans. You know, the people are just, and they're, and people, they're not all enemies of Rome is the thing either. Many of them are just people that are rich, that are neutral, or have no dog in the fight. And Sulla just needs money to support his troops and money to support his new regime. So he puts their name on the list. There's a story of a guy who comes out and, and, and he reads his name on the list. And he goes, he goes, my God, or my gods, or whatever he says, uh, some ex- kind of exclamation. Then he goes, my Alban estate has killed me. And that would be like a, a nice area of the Italian countryside. 
he's basically saying that his riches and his his big mansion has has killed him, and then he's he's quickly butchered by people around him on the spot, or at least he tried to run and, and they called him or, or something of that nature. So a lot of people are being killed simply because they have money and Silva needs their money. And this goes on for a while, and, and thousands of people are killed. And this so is at, at this point, where where exactly is Marius? It seems like a. Uh, oh, he is died. He, is he fighting? Oh he, oh, he is dead at this point. All right. Yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. Try to make that clear. Shortly into his consulship, when he started having all these night terrors, he he then he dies. Okay. Yeah. So he's dead, and they were. They, that's kind of the thing. They had killed all these Solon, these supporters of Sola, and then lost their champion Marius shortly afterwards. So he must have been sitting there, you know, thinking, "Oh my God, we're screwed now." Right. Yeah. So Sola's in charge. He makes himself dictator. He's killing people. Now enter young Julius Caesar. He's, like I said, born in 100 BC. He's a young man. His father dies while putting on his shoes. And <laughs> When Caesar's around 16 or 17, they don't say too much about his father. But then Caesar becomes kind of the, the man of the household, which is not just a figure of speech in Rome. It was called the pater familius, and they were the kind of supreme rulers of their family. And a lot was expected of them, and a lot was given to them. And Caesar had been offered the daughter of Cinna, who had been Marius's ally. And he had been consul like four times. He'd been offered the daughter of Cinna as a marriage alliance. And so he had been previously engaged to another girl when he was younger, when he was a child, his parents did it for him. So he broke off that engagement and he got engaged to, or married Cinna's daughter. Her name is Cornelia. And then Cinna also made him what you would call the Flamandialis, which is a, a priesthood in Rome. And the Flamandialis is, is an interesting priesthood because had it gone down this way and, and had it been allowed to continue this way, history would be radically different. I have a, a passage here which says about what the Flamandialis couldn't do, and there's a lot of limitations. So here it says, Amongst many other things, the Flamandialis was not allowed to take an oath to pass more than three nights away from the city or to see a corpse, an army on campaign, or anyone working on a festival day. In addition, he could not ride a horse, he could not have a knot anywhere within his house or even on his clothing and could not be presented with, with a table without food since he was never to appear to be in want. Furthermore, he could only be shaved or have his hair cut by a slave using a bronze knife. And the cut hair, along with other things such as nail clippings, had to be buried in a secret place. <laughs> <laughs> the Flamen wore a special hat called the Apex, which appears to have been made from fur, had a point on top and flaps over the ears. These restrictions made a normal senatorial career impossible, end quote. And if you, if you, can, you can Google Flamandialis, too, and see what these guys wore. It looks absurd. I mean, it's like a, like a furry hat with flaps over the ears and then got like a candlestick on your head. I mean, it looks ridiculous. But, yeah, he, he couldn't have left the city for more than three days, couldn't have r rode horses, wasn't allowed to see armies on campaign, wasn't allowed to see... I don't know what else. He wasn't allowed to see corpses, I said. Oh, he wasn't allowed to ride a horse. So you can imagine it would not have been possible for him to have a normal you know, military life, normal Roman senatorial life at this point. So, But Sola comes in. Sola says, all right. And he did this to a lot of people. He said, all right, you're going to divorce your wife, Cornelia, 
because she's the daughter of my enemy and I'm going to find a better match for you and have you married to one of my female relatives. And everybody uniformly said yes to this because, I mean, probably the best case scenario for many of them, you know, like that they're going to die. And, you know, marriage in Rome was not so much a love match. It was a political alliance. So it wasn't like they were, I mean, it wasn't like they had some deep, I mean, there were some couples that loved each other, but many of them were just a political alliance. He gets to Caesar and Caesar's all of 16 years old. And this fearsome, ruthless, bloody dictator Sola, who just marched on Rome, is killing people every day, says, you're going to divorce your wife, and you're not going to be flowing Dialis anymore. Or at least he said, you're, not going to, you're going to divorce your wife, I guess, at this point. And Caesar says to him, no, I'm not doing that. And Sola probably couldn't believe it, you know. And so he puts Caesar's name on one of his prescription lists, and Caesar has to flee the city of Rome and he's hiding out at 16 years old in different barns, in different, you know, back cottages in the countryside. Got to move every single night to somebody new and find somebody else to take him in to avoid Sola's death squads. During this process, he catches malaria and he's deathly sick. And Sola's death squads catch up to him and they find him. And in this malaria weakened state at 16 years old, on the run with, you know, no family around him, Caesar has to face these death squads. And he manages to convince them to take a bribe from him and let him go, which you can imagine. I mean, it sounds easy to say, oh, yeah, yeah, he bribed them and they let him go. But I'm sure it wasn't just like, here, take this money, because they could have just taken the money and killed him. He had to say something convincing enough to get them to release him and take the money and, and not kill him. And he manages to do this. So he shows from an early age that he does not like being bullied. If Sola tried to tell him what to do, divorce your wife, and he seemed to be happy with his wife, and Caesar stands up to him and says, no, you're not going to tell me what to do, even though it was near suicidal to do that. I mean, it's crazy. And he ends up surviving it and trusting his own luck. And then he's got some influential relatives who then you know, intervene on his behalf and, and tell Sola, you know, please let him go. He, he really hasn't done anything wrong he's just a stupid kid he's not worth your time to eventually after all this lobbying Sola says and I have the quote here quote very well then you win take him but never forget that the man whom you want me to spare will one day prove the ruin of the party of optimates which you and I have so long defended there are many Mariuses in this fellow Caesar and that's the famous line that Sulla said when he was 16. There are many Mariuses in this fellow Caesar. Wow. And so had he met him in person? I mean, in order to... Yes, he had. Say he had, okay. So Caesar came before Sulla, and he's described as being loosely belted, which is what they describe a lot of the Roman youth that were maybe like chic and in style back uh, in those days because they'd have a belt around their toga. And these kind of young, hip guys would wear their belts very loosely. But he shows up before the dictator like this, <laughs> which is, uh, again, a calculated radical move to show that, I should back up, Sola represents the conservatives. He represents the people that did not want Rome to change, even though it's, it's, it's kind of absurd because he himself changed so much of Rome. He, he marched on Rome himself. He broke all the rules, but he was himself a conservative. And Caesar showing up to, to meet with Sola like this or to appear before him 
is kind of uh, making a, a stance that, hey, I'm a populare. I, uh, you know, represent the people and not the conservative establishment. And so Sola saw him and felt that, you know, there were many Mariuses in, in his fellow Caesar and predicted that he would tear down everything that they had worked to create. So Caesar, after that, he flees and he goes east to join the military because he figured Rome still wasn't safe for him with Sola, you know, being kind of the wild guy that he is. And I should say, and back up a little bit, that Caesar, though he has this illustrious name and he's a patrician, he was born into relatively low circumstances. He, he grew up in this neighborhood called the Sabura, and that was infamous for its prostitution, had a lot of immigrants to Rome in, in the area. It was considered lower class compared to, to where most of the senatorial families would be. Even though he had this patrician name and he was, you know, old-time Roman family, they were in the slums. This is not a good area. So he, he didn't start out with a lot of money. He started out, you know, with a good name, and, and that's about it. And uh, at this point, even at 16, Sola has confiscated his dowry, has forced him into exile from Rome, and, you know, he almost dies at this point. But on a positive note for Caesar, because of all this incident, he, Sola revokes the Flamen Dialis from him, and he, he's not going to be that priest anymore. So now he's free to pursue a normal military life of, of, that a Roman aristocrat would pursue. So Sola was the one who ends up taking that position away from him? Yeah. yeah if it was not for Sola, it, if he had not said no to Sola's demand to divorce Cornelia, or had Sola not marched on Rome, then he would be stuck in that position. Because he, I guess he hadn't actually, he had been given the position, but he hadn't actually been maybe invested with the powers yet, because maybe he wasn't quite old enough. Okay. I have a description of Sola I want to read for the audience here. Let me just pull that up real quick. It's fascinating. This author of a book that I'm consulting, it's called Caesar, Life of a Colossus by Adrian Goldsworthy. And Goldsworthy says of Caesar, Caesar was the only man to refuse and to persist in that refusal in spite of threats and offers of favors, quite possibly including marriage link, a marriage link to the dictator's family. And that's he's refusing to divorce his wife, he's saying. Given recent events, this was remarkable boldness. Most of all, for a youth who could easily be removed in any way had connections with the opposition. Why he did this is unknown. The marriage to Cornelia does appear to have been happy one, a happy one, but it may just as easily have been innate stubbornness or pride. So kind of distinguishes himself as a pretty remarkable person even early on. Any questions on what I've said so far as I pull up this passage? Uh Oh, so that was a description of Caesar, because before you were saying... Uh, yeah, yeah, but I'm looking so for, I guess I, I kind of stumbled across that one as I looked. Oh, I got it, got it. Yeah, it, it always confused me hearing about, like, uh, Caesar, Sola, they come from these, uh, these aristocratic families, but yet they don't have any power or money. But I guess, in a way, it makes sense in that if you compare it to modern times, if you have some kind of, um, like, uh, Bush or Quentin grandchild... It would be given some kind of advantage that they have the name. People would at least look at them and see if they can do anything. But then from there, if they don't have any talent or if they don't have any capability, then people won't look again. Yeah, exactly like that. And I think, I think especially living in the U.S., it's harder to imagine that somebody would be given so much credit for their name because that's usually not the way things are done here. And, and money means a lot more here. 
their money was a tool, but money wasn't the, it was a means. It wasn't the ends in itself. And the ends was power. And money would fuel your political career, but money is not, you know, what brought prestige. Money is not what brought honor and glory. So, you know, they had been a powerful family, but they had, you know, they hadn't won the consulship in many years. They were not in a place where Caesar thought they should be, thought they should be, you know, winning many more honors than they were, thought they should be more respected than they were. And he felt it was his duty to get them back on track and to raise the family status to what it should be and what it had fallen from. But he had to do so, you know, he had good connections, but now he's on the wrong side of the guy that rules Rome. And Sola, when he came in, he, he remodeled the government to make it much more conservative, much more limiting on the... So there's kind of two parties in Rome. And please do not make the mistake of confusing them with Republicans and Democrats, because they're not at all the same. They're very different. But there were the populares that stood for the people. They spoke the kind of Latin that the people spoke. They would fight for, you know, legislation for the people. The conservatives would criticize and say it was just really, uh, you know, rabble-rousing. They were just using the mob to boost their own uh, popularity and seize control of the government. Conservatives felt it was their duty to guard against that. And the conservatives went by a group called, they they were called the Optimates, which meant like the best men or the bony. Uh, Those are uh, kind of synonyms. So the Optimates and the bony are, are one group. They're just different names for the same group, kind of like you call them Republicans or GOP, even though I said not to confuse them with each other. But many of these people in these groups, the populars and the optimates, they're not political parties. They're more identity politics. You know, people that tend to have maybe a bit more flair and, and like to hang out among the common people and, you know, rabble rouse, they're going to be a populare. And, and people that feel that they're more conservative or, they're fam- or you know, they're more about the traditional Roman values would be optimates, but it wasn't so strict and people would cross over and everybody was intermarried with each other. So maybe your cousin was on the opposite side. So, you know, things were constantly shifting. So when you describe it there, it almost does kind of seem similar to the modern conservative and liberal parties. So what are the differences then? So you have any, yeah, they didn't have, platforms of set objectives a lot of uh, both these parties all politics was personal for the romans and you know they're all just trying to do what would get them personally ahead and so it wasn't usually principle that led people to these groups and the groups weren't united by an official party they didn't have party meetings or anything like that they were kind of taking the route they best thought would lead them to power and that you know their family would approve of I don't know that I can give a good explanation off the top of my head as to why it's different than Republicans and Democrats, but maybe as we begin to explain this you know, and kind of flesh out the entire story of Caesar, it'll become clear. In some ways, they're similar. You know, they're, they're, The popularities are reformers. The optimates do not want any changes to the government. They think Rome is perfect the way it was when it was founded, and any changes to it are just corrupting it. So yeah, there are definitely similarities between you know, conservatives and liberals today, but many differences— yeah, yeah. I, I seriously say it's just very convenient to think of them as the exact same. And so it's important to, even if there are similarities, to not fall in the trap thinking that they are completely the same. Exactly. Yeah. If you fall into that trap, I mean, it's going to be easy to start thinking of them that way. And 
They're really not. And, and you'll see as time goes on, we'll talk about the different points and different things that they each support and how often people flip sides. And you'll see that it, it's not the same as Republicans and Democrats. They're not official parties. They're more just they're political traditions. And Sola's goal after marching in Rome was to eradicate the populari tradition. He didn't want any more people. So here's a way to put it. The populares took their power from support of the people. The optimates took their power from support of the establishment. And Sola did not want pop- populares anymore. And he wanted to eradicate that tradition. So one of the biggest tools of the populares was a position called the Tribune, Tribune of the Plebs. They were somebody that could support, the, that was put in place to support the plebs and stop patricians originally from passing legislation that would be anti-plebeian. And later on in in the city's lifespan, these tribunes began to be used to be very obstructive to government because they had something called a veto, and they could veto anything, any bill that was put out by anybody, they could veto it. Even if they had all the votes in the world, all they got to do is, I interpose my veto, and it stops proceedings. And Sola found this was obstructive. He thought this was just made for rabble-rousing, and he wanted to get rid of it. So what he did was he said that that position still exists, but anybody who becomes a tribune of the pleb is then barred from holding any other office. So it would eliminate any ambitious men from taking that position. Yeah, yeah. Sola is an interesting character. He seems to have a lot of contradictions. Like he, he hangs out with the, the artists and the, the actors in the slums, in other words, the people, but then he's part of the establishment political party and is uh, enacting things that will work against those same people, it seems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He, he, he was a contradiction because he, he would essentially say to people, do what I say, not what I do. You know, he, he breaks every rule in the book. He marches on Rome. He makes himself dictator. But he tells everybody, oh, you need to follow the, the rules set down by, you know, the, the old time uh, Romans. You know, you need to follow all the conservative principles when he himself is, is following none of them in order to implement those conservative principles. There's a little story I found here on him about Sola, and it says, quote, it had always been a temporary post, meaning a uh, dictator laid down after six months. But Sola discarded these restrictions and set no time limit to his office. He was named Dictator Legibus Faciendus et Re Publicae Constitunde, uh, which in my Latin pronunciation is probably atrocious. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it at all. But essentially, essentially what that means is dictator to make laws and reconstitute the state and by a vote in a popular assembly. His office was unprecedented. So again, this is an unprecedented thing. This is like something that a conservative wouldn't do as was the violence he used to crush any opposition. On one occasion, he casually ordered the execution of his own senior officer in the forum because the man persisted in standing for the consulship in defiance of the dictator's orders. And so, so now that, that title is Dictatorship for Reconstitution or something of the, of the state? Is that yeah, what it dictator was? Dictator to make laws and reconstitute the state. Reconstitute. You know, that sounds like it could go on indefinitely because uh, who's to say when the state's been reconstituted? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And, I mean, he, he doesn't – as clever as he was, he does not seem to understand that he is setting a precedent that you can march on Rome and as long as you have the might on your side, you have the right on your side. And I don't know how he could miss that fact. 
In fact, Caesar would later in his life say about Sola that Sola didn't know his political ABCs <laughs> or something about the, maybe not ABCs, but whatever the equivalent of, of the Latin version of that was. And so before you said, he said, do as I say, not as I do, or the other way around? No, I mean, he didn't actually say that, but it's kind of what he was oh, saying to people. A, like, here's what okay. he would tell them, like, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to do that, and expect nobody to look at what he had, is actually doing and decide, well, I'm going to ignore what he says and just do what he does, you know? He right, thought they would yeah. just say, do what he says. I'm yeah. still looking for the passage about Sola. I wish I could find it. Oh, well, I guess we'll have to just talk about it next time. I can bring it up. I think that's yeah, where sure we're you gonna, could do a whole podcast on Solar. You could, you could. But I think we're going to end it there. You know, we're leaving off with Caesar going east, fleeing from Rome. You know, he, he's okay with the state now. His relatives intervened and at much persuasion got Caesar off the execution list and even allowed him to pursue a normal career. But Caesar decided it's best to leave Rome and he's gone and, and joined the legions in the east in the area of like Turkey and the Greek islands. So we'll pick up next time from there and we'll keep on going with life of Caesar. Thank you for listening to March of history. Yeah.